I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science. As always, I'm your host, Taylor Sparks, here at the University of Utah in the Material Science and Engineering Department. I'm an associate professor, and normally I would say that I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Andrew Falkowski, but he is out today. But have no fear, I am actually joined by my good friend and fellow professor in the department, Mike Scarpula. Mike, how are you? I'm awesome. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while, and you know, every time we go out skiing in the morning, I've been you know, talking to you about it. So thanks for finally making it happen. Oh, absolutely. So Mike is the best to have in the department, not only because he's, he's a great teacher, <laughs> great user, but he's my adventure buddy. Yeah. We go climbing together. And when he says, when we go skiing in the morning, we, I, I did 40 days this, this winter. And I bet Mike was there for three quarters of those. Yep. Yep. We're definitely testing out some composite materials and, you know, seeing phase changes of ice and liquid <laughs> water every day. <laughs> well, tell me about yourself, Mike, for people that don't know you, what's sort of your background? Why are you doing what you're doing? I thought I was going to be some kind of engineer growing up, and then I found I just really loved chemistry and physics, and I was sort of around a bunch of engineers, and somehow, some somehow, someone close to my family knew something about this thing called material science. Was this before college? Yeah, yeah, this was like junior year in high school. And nobody's ever heard of it. That's like so atypical. Well, I kind of lived within striking distance of MIT. So there's, uh-huh. a, lot, there's a lot of people around. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I had this conversation that, you know, really changed my life. You know, this guy was like, well, you know, maybe you'd consider chemical engineering, but there's this thing called material science that really brings together physics and chemistry and engineering. Maybe you should look into it. Yeah. Bingo, man. I was like, sold. I'm done. <laughs> I totally get that. So yeah, every, you know, I always, tell family and friends who are asking, you know, why they're like, why are you doing this thing I've never heard of? And, <laughs> and I'd say, well, everything has to be made out of something. And, you know, therefore it's kind of the fundamental engineering and science. Oh, absolutely. And how great that you don't have to pick like one discipline either. That's one of my biggest reasons why I love MSC. It is chemistry. It is physics. It's mechanics. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's everything, right? It's like foundational to anything that you want to make except for, you know, literature and yeah. computer science, yeah. but even computer science got to run on something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you came, so you did grad school. That was where? Yeah, so I found there weren't there weren't that many MSc programs, so I, I went through Brown University Engineering of all places, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then went on to um, work for IBM for just a short amount of time. But Wait, I don't the, think I knew that. Yeah. You were IBM I, for a bit? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a dirty secret. I <laughs> completely bombed the GRE the first time I took it. No way. I, I had the f- I had the flu or some terrible fever, and I um, I they had, it was the year that they changed over to the adaptive testing, and I'd 
didn't know like how to do the test. So I skipped all the questions. Oh no. <laughs> and then at the no. end, I was like, oh, I'll just go back and do the questions I skipped, which was my normal like paper-based thing. And you can't do that with adaptive testing. you can't testing. do that. <laughs> I don't know if they still do that now, but holy smokes, that would be a disaster. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. the way that the test, at least when we took it, it was like each t- question you took made it progressively harder and harder. Yep. And they were trying yep. to figure out like, where's your, you know, your, right. your steady state in. of understanding. And this is like the first time, right? So they, you know, it was oh, like- it was like their, I was like their guinea pig for, so anyway, I, I bombed this thing. I was a little burnt out after, after school and I decided to, um, go to the place where I had done one of these NSF REU programs and I worked on like x-ray, x-ray measurements of thickness and density of films and like lubricant. Uh, it was lubricant spinoff was what it was. So it was, it was, we were working on old fashioned hard dot, hard drives that okay. actually yeah, spin. Yeah. And you, you have this sort of like super thin molecularly thin films of, um, of like perfluoro, you know, perfluoro, uh, polyether molecules. So I was like working on viscosity at the, at the molecular scale. I didn't and know this. <laughs> I'm no, kind of surprised. I, I, I did Not where your research is right now. Right, but it, but the thing that connected there was, you know, I was around a lot of really smart and talented magneticians, you know, people who were focused on the on the ferromagnetic layers, and so from that I kind of decided, you know, the hardest the hardest thing in the world to understand is is ferromagnetism. I mean, there arguably there are some other things with like superconductivity uh-huh. and sure, so forth. Sure, yeah. But I was like, if I can magnetism's do, no joke. If I can do <laughs> that, if I can understand magnetism, then I know I can do anything. <laughs> that Dude, was that's my, rad. That was my strategy for going to grad school. I wanted to find something that had to do with magnetism, and then I got interested somewhat in the electronic structure somewhere along the way. So, well, very cool. I merged those into semi, you know, semi magnetic semiconductors in grad school at Berkeley. Okay, and then you went to do a postdoc at UCSB, where we were there at the same time. Though yeah, I, don't, I don't know if we yeah. ever met officially. I'm not. We would have crossed paths, I'm sure, somewhere. Probably walking this lunch or something. I saw this guy. <laughs> I was like, "Who's that guy?" Oh. Maybe I'll see him in the future. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and uh, been at Utah since 2010 or 11? 2008. 2008, okay. Yep. Well, Mike's a pleasure to have in the department. And I have him on today's episode in particular because he knows all about photovoltaics. And that is today's topic. We're going to talk about photovoltaics, solar cells, right? Solar panels on your roof, solar panels everywhere nowadays. Like, they are certainly booming. If you look at plots that show global uptake of this, the amount of energy being generated from the sun, right, mm-hmm. uh, in various sources, but even just photovoltaics, which we'll focus on today, as opposed to solar thermal and other things, it's huge, and it's getting mm-hmm. bigger all the time. So yeah, what are annual, these things? How do they work? growth rates have been like 20 30% for the last decade. Just nuts. You're Absolutely on, you're nuts. Your growth rates are ridiculous. Yeah. So we, we thought we ought to do an episode on this and talk a little bit about what on earth are these things. And before we dive into like the tech uh, of like these different panels and do they work and are there problems with them? Are they great? Or what's happening in the future? We got to rewind a little bit and talk about how on earth do these things even mm-hmm. work? Like what are mm-hmm. the fundamental material science bits? So Mike, you can't do that without getting to a PN junction. I remember my, my, mm-hmm. post, my, my mm-hmm. PhD advisor said that like, Mankind has uncovered like three amazing mysteries. And one of those was the PN junction. And I have to agree with him. Like it is absolutely incredible what we've done with that humble PN junction. So what is it? Yeah. Well, I'm going to rewind you one step further. Just like what is a semiconductor material? Oh, yeah. So a semiconductor, um, you know, I think, oh, there's a great quote somewhere around the, 
you know, somewhere in the early 1900s, um, these these materials had or these minerals, excuse me, had sort of been identified, and there people were starting to realize that they conducted electricity differently than you know metals than metals did, and they started to realize how finicky they were, how tricky it was to control their properties and to sort of predict what's going to happen. Like so, the the original uh, discovery of semiconducting materials, I believe, was with galena, which is lead sulfide. So you can, you know, you can go to rock shops and buy this. Okay. And basically, you know, if you put a piece of metal in contact with it, try to run electricity through it, it conducts in one direction and doesn't conduct in the other direction. And they had no idea why. Right. At first they had, you know, the first demonstrations uh, were by, um, I think his name was Braun. I want to say Ferdinand Braun in in Germany, and he was he was essentially a high school teacher, like a, some kind of private academy, and he discovered this rectifying behavior. So really, uh, that that property is what's eventually exploited in all the, um, you know, all the devices or all the applications that we're talking about, like logic chips and um, LEDs and PN junctions. Like it's all about some kind of uh, junction between two different types of materials uh-huh. that you know makes electricity flow differently one way than it does the other way. Yeah, so when I when I t- teach about semiconductors in my intro to MSc class, you know, it's really obvious some materials are metals. They conduct. They have all these free electrons. They can conduct a current. And it's really obvious that some things don't conduct at all, no matter what you do to them. You know, yep. think of like a, a an aluminum plate, like yep. your dinner plate yep. that you eat off. It was not going to conduct electricity. Yep. And then you've got these materials, you know, they got real creative with the name, semiconductor. <laughs> <laughs> like they kind of, and, and the catch is that the, the, what differentiates these materials is the band gap, right? So the band gap, if, if you're just hearing that for the first time, what on earth is it? Think yeah. about the allowable energy states of electrons, right? They can sort of fill allowable states. There exists regions, we call them band gaps, right? Regions in the energy spectrum where there's no seats for these electrons to sit, basically. So they can't occupy those spots. Yeah, I guess, you know, you can make all sorts of analogies. As you're, as you're talking about seats, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about, um, you know, kids in a, a schoolroom. And okay. if they're all sitting in their seats, like, there's no kids moving around, right? Right. They're, they're kind of stuck in place, and they can't, you know, you can't make kids go in one door and out the other door. Uh-huh. But if you give them a lot of energy, let's say in this case we give them lots of sugar, they can like get out of their jump seat. Out of their, they're jumping yeah, out of their seat. It. You have to give them a certain amount of energy to, you know, to liven up and get out of their seat and run around. And then you can have kids running in one door and out the other door. And sometimes they jump back in the seats and sometimes they jump back out of the seats. All depends on how much sugar you gave them. So that what you just described, <laughs> that um, that photons, right? That light, for example. Well, there's two there's two things. Yes, so, I mean photons are one. So, or thermal so like, energy or we, other things, right? Right. We 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 have to explain the analogy that the you know sugar I was talking about could represent you know just heat, temperature, or um, light, and um, other things like X-rays also can do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So the the photoelectric effect, this goes way back to like the 1800s. It's actually what uh, one of the things uh, Albert Einstein got his Nobel Prize Mm -hmm, for, along mm -hmm. with relativity, was the photoelectric effect. Pretty amazing. But this process that you can liberate these electrons and all of a sudden they become conductors, if you provide enough energy, is kind of the basis of 
photovoltaics where you've got energy coming from the sun. Mm-hmm. It's going to interact with your device in a specific way and get current collection. Now, why do we need, well, first off, now that we've got that explained, that will only work if you have a PN junction. So what on earth is that? Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to modify that just a little bit because that has been the basis of the discussion for decades about photovoltaics. Uh-huh. But actually, as we approach the sort of theoretical maximum of efficiency of photovoltaics, it's become more and more clear that you don't really need a PN junction per se. What you need is uh, two, two different junctions on either side of the, of the solar cell, one that collects electrons and one that takes electrons from the outside and lets them go in. I see. So a PN junction is just one thing that could do that, but there's yeah, other ways to do it. It's, it's become, it's been interesting to see this. It's been interesting to see this. And, and actually what provided a lot of perspective on this is the, the, the fact that people have made photovoltaics out of many different types of materials. For example, um, organic and polymer photovoltaics. Because in that case, um, in, in those materials... The, the doping, which is one of the other um, super important ingredients of like te- semiconductor technology, um, just doesn't work. Like the, the, the thing about traditional solid or, or, or inorganic semiconductors uh-huh. um, that we've sort of taken for granted for, for many decades um, is that you can, you can change it from so-called N-type to P-type. So when you're talking about a PN junction, like that's what you're talking about. One side had donors in it that gave extra electrons, and the other side had acceptors that had uh, like a missing electron. Um, and when people started working with organic uh, photovoltaics, just the, the the nature of the materials are different, and and doping just isn't a thing. You can't add like acceptor groups and donor groups to molecules and stuff. Well, yeah, well, sorry, no, you can't. Um, Essentially, you can't because the molecule always wants to be charge neutral. So what you're really doing when you're, um, you know, when you're doping a semiconductor, you're in, in some way, you're kind of, you're kind of making it not charge neutral, but nature sort of uh, uh, compensates it. Like, let's go back to the kindergarten example again. Okay, yeah. It's like you put in you put in an extra kid into the classroom. Okay. Even though all the seats are full, you put an extra kid. Like there's a kid who can run around. Okay. Conduct electricity. Gotcha. And uh, y- you just can't do that. So anyway, by by looking at vastly different materials, like just so qualitatively different materials, we sort of gained insight into what is really needed to make a photovoltaic device work. Okay. And so it became clear that it's really about making what are called carrier selective contacts. So, so what does that mean? Yeah, it, mean, it means that you've got to put two materials next to each other in contact um, such that, you know, on one side of the photovoltaic, the electrons will jump out into that other material and go into an external wire. Okay. And on the other side... You're going to jump into your... You, you jump in. I mean, we talk about it as, as like holes in the semiconductor, which are sort of like these empty seats. But you can also view it as 
right, if you're looking at the electrons, it's like they take an electron out of the wire and yeah. let it jump in, and they never let electrons go the other way. So really, it's all about these one-way valves. You have you have like, uh, you know, a waterfall for water is a nice example. It's like water only goes down the waterfall; it never goes back up. Right, 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 right. It's just like that, except in a more abstract energy space. Okay. Well, what other terms do we need to understand? We talked about band gaps. We kind of introduced this idea of the device components a little bit. Yeah. Anything yeah. else that we need to understand before we dive into sort of the history of these things? Um, I mean, I think maybe just what are some examples of semiconductor materials? So I mentioned this lead sulfide, um, and that was found as a mineral. Like, you can you can literally go buy a chunk of it and play with Add it. it. Um, and then, you know, of course, silicon has is perhaps the most well-known one. But um, personally, my, you know, my interest is in what's called compound semiconductors. So, um, so when you take two or more elements and put them together, and it makes a, a semiconducting crystal. Um, so, so like if you look um, on either side of, of silicon on the periodic table, you have boron and nitrogen. If you, if you put those together, it turns out it makes uh, an insulator, but like... I think it's maybe worth talking about what's the difference between a insulator and a semiconductor. Yeah, just the, the size of that band gap. Size of the band gap, but also there's there's a functional technological definition, which is whether you can dope it or not. Oh it. yeah, okay. So so they're they're like from the band structure point of view, band structure meaning like the energy levels that occup that electrons can occupy, there is no difference except the size of the band gap. But Give an example of like a of a large band gap semiconductor that's easily doped. Yeah, so this this material I've been working on is a, is an interesting case and brought in my perspective. So the last five or so years I've been working on um, this material called gallium oxide. Up until I don't know, give or take ten years ago, I was considered a ceramic or an insulator. Yeah, for sure. Like gallia is it's, like it's just like alumina. Right. It's a it's like alumina. Right. Except its band gap is four point something electron volts instead of you know eight or so for alumina. But still, way too big to be a semiconductor. Right. Typically, but then people figured out you can dope the heck out of it. You put if you put silicon into gallium oxide. Oh right, because it's one over, so it's donating electrons. I guess. Yeah, it goes on. It goes where the gallium atoms should sit, and it gives you these extra electrons, like the extra kid in the kindergarten class, and so you can have electrons running around inside and conducting electricity. Slick. So, so really, that that gives you a, mi- a minute to think about it. Like, what is our definition of a semiconductor? Part of it is part of it has to do with, like, does it have an energy gap? Yes. But the other part is, can you control the doping? Which is, um, it, it's a problem that's uh, tied up with how the material forms um, defect states. Okay. And, and that's kind of where my specialty lies, so you probably shouldn't get me talking yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> Another episode. Okay, yeah. so with that, we are now armed and ready to talk about the basics of uh, PV sort of history. And uh, you know, this goes way back. Like, you go to, like, hundreds of years B.C., and they were using the sun for all sorts of things, right? They were frying ants. They were lighting fires with it. There's this... Uh, possibly apocryphal story of like the ancient Greeks setting these ships on fire <laughs> by pointing their bronze shields right, at it. Right. Uh, actually in 1973, the Greek army like recreated this and said, yeah, we could do it. Gotta it did work. technically work. But like, <laughs> anyway, so that was not sort of photovoltaics per se. It's just using the sun. The field of photovoltaics really kicked off with this discovery, the photoelectric effect, but it was just an interesting curiosity at that point. We didn't have devices with it. I'd yeah, say it's so really, pho- yeah, go ahead. 
Photoelectric is is slightly different. Um, when we talk about the photoelectric effect that that Einstein won his Nobel Prize for, um, that's it's like taking electrons fully out of the material. So typically, you know, you'd ha- you, you you'd investigate this effect with a piece of metal inside a vacuum, right? So it's it's actually related to these, uh, you know, to these tube amplifiers you have over here for yeah. your for your uh, for your guitar amp. Um, in in one case, you're getting the electrons to jump out um, just by heating them up. That's like the normal operation of the tube. And then another, you're uh, getting the electrons out by shining this light on it, the photoelectric effect. Okay. So, so, so the f- in in terms of what goes on in a semiconductor, the the one difference is that the electrons actually stay inside the material instead of being physically removed. Yeah, they just out. go through a loop, right? We're, we've made a loop, an electrical circuit that they yeah, can travel yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, but they like they don't jump out into the Vacuum. outside air. Yeah, gotcha. Right, gotcha. they jump into these junctions. Other quantum states inside the material and then they can run around gotcha sorry that's a finer point (laughs) no 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 Um, i'm a professor (laughs) oh yeah no please in any case uh these things really weren't making major changes in our lives until the 50s like maybe a little bit before but in the 50s you have who else but bell labs right yeah kind of the timeline starts in 1954 um these workers at bell labs had been working on you know Making and doping silicon single crystals. Um, this is, you know, there, there was some work in semiconductors that was classified during you know, the later parts of um, World War II, and then eventually they they started um, controlling this doping. And that's really the that's really like the secret sauce of semiconductor technology. It's like how do you how do you put these dopants, these n-type or p-type dopants, where you want them? And that's what yeah. that's what allows it to be engineerable. Yeah, because now all of a sudden you could say, you know, two or three microns deep in the material, it'll be N-type. Yep. But yep. in the surface, it yep. it'll be P-type. And now at the interface, that's the, the PN junction that I referred to earlier, yeah. right? You know, once you make a PN junction, and, and, and let's go back to this, like, this waterfall idea. It's like, if you, if you then shine light, it's kind of like adding an extra cup of water to this waterfall. And yeah. like the cup of water is going to fall over the waterfall and, and the current is going to flow because it yeah. wants to go that way. So now you can do something with that current. You can, right. you know, charge your iPhone or whatever else, you you know, you sort of yeah, so, takes for. So kind of very quickly, it's, it's, it's funny. You look at the old advertisements when they, when they made their press releases about this, they were calling it the solar battery. Oh, really? This is going to be the solar battery that's going to change all the tele- telephone relays. <laughs> so like the, the idea was that they would hang these these solar panels on the telephone poles because they, you know, all the, the old telephone system, um, was, was powered. I mean, like you didn't, you didn't have to plug your t- home telephone into the wall. It actually drew power out of the telephone wires. And so this was going to be this providing gonna, that this power. Is drive that. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. <laughs> but I mean, 1954, this first one they made was abysmal by today's standards. It was like a 1% efficiency. No, 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 no. And this isn't, <laughs> this is an important metric that I have for myself. Uh huh. Um, they, you know, by the time they made their press release, okay, you know, who knows what they really did, you know, and didn't talk about, but oh, by yeah, the time yeah. they made their press release, they had achieved a 6% efficient solar cell. So that meant that it was taking, um, you know, if you, if you, if you take the, and measure the power that's actually coming from, you know, the sun on a sunny day, 
and then you capture six percent of that and and then you measure how much electrical power is coming out so the voltage times the current Uh uh-huh it was converting six percent geez that's better than what i was looking at i know it was timeline i was looking at was showing it was one percent then four percent and like by the late 50s we were getting up there yeah it's probably i mean it depends on what they announced you know like like there's a difference between what what you could buy and yeah. like uh, what okay, they've sure. done in the lab, which is still true today. Um, that said, in the 50s, this wasn't like it was on every power line. This didn't even get in people's homes until much later. In fact, it was really restricted towards pretty niche applications. So late 50s yeah. saw them putting it in space, right? You've got satellites and yeah. and deep space probes. And so when you hear about like the Sputnik and Voyager, like these things had solar photovoltaics on yeah. them. Yeah, this, the, this is one of these examples where like, a, a, you know, the... The, the demands and the engi- you know the engineering and and cost benefit analysis that goes into um, space is so different than yeah. normal applications yeah something that's like crazy weight, expensive for us we're like oh yeah yeah, yeah we can do weight, that. weight is the premium like you, you what really costs money is is lifting mass into orbit yeah and then you know when they're when you're trying to beat the Soviets like <laughs> there's no no <laughs> you just have a blank checkbook but um yeah, so the n- investment by NASA really took this high tech technology and, and gave you know gave a bunch of researchers and engineers um, a way to work on it, like basically a, a, a yeah justification a justification for working on it and resources to work on it to improve the technology, and, and, that- and then finally you know now we're seeing it like come into. Mm-hmm. You know, my house, your house, yeah. like down the road. A, a pretty key point, as, as I understand it, was in the 70s, right? Uh, I wasn't around then. That was a little before my time. But there was the oil embargo, and all of a sudden we saw domestic uh, p- conventional energy resources got expensive. And that really incentivized, the, the, at least in the U.S., to start looking at, you know, what are alternatives? And so yeah. all of a sudden that was sort of yeah. the rise of the first terrestrial solar panels on at first in businesses and eventually in homes more towards the 80s yeah yeah i think i think one of the biggest things that changed was attitudes and interest right right the um yeah that was a little bit before when i was born but you know folks started looking at sustainability and um and ways to yeah ways to get energy from from the sun i mean the, the crazy you know the crazy story like jimmy uh jimmy carter actually installed so not solar photovoltaics but solar water heating panels on the white house House at that time and 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 i think that's a nice reflection of like where people's thoughts were going yeah yeah that like hey you know we we don't need to burn something to heat up this water let's just let it sit out in the sun and sure sure even if we heat it up by one degree Two degrees Celsius, we've still saved money and resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, very slick. Um, And then the timeline is sort of advanced. You know, obviously, we've seen in recent years, the last couple decades, a huge adoption of solar. So, what's that? What's been driving that? Well, uh, that that's something that I think is debated. I'll tell you one version of a story. Uh Um, Go ahead. I mean, I think. Let let me back us back up to 1954. Okay. Because there's. It turns out, you know, I've I've been working on this long overdue uh, review paper for thin film <laughs> photovoltaics, <laughs> but you know, some in the same year, it turns out, uh, folks made the first thin film solar panels. And that, that was in the fifties. Yeah, nineteen fifty-four. Oh, wow. Same I year. That came way later. I know. 
you have to yeah you got to look interesting <laughs> yeah interesting but, so so what is what is the difference so you know the original concept you know uh, bell labs was working on these silicon solar panel excuse me solar cells um but there were also you know everybody was starting to get excited about um diodes and transistors um these other types of electronic components um but the way you make this is by by growing a single crystal of silicon and then and then doing things to it like like diffusing in a dopant like we were talking about okay the thin now the, the thin film device like totally rethinks that idea so instead of having one perfect crystal what if we took something super cheap like glass and then we coat onto it these semiconductors so we okay. make essentially like artificial rocks and you don't need a very thick layer right because the yeah. absorption happens over microns yeah like something like a couple microns is all you need in terms of what will absorb the light and so folks started thinking about this and there you know you look back in the in the history books of photovoltaics and it's sort of like you know a couple people working at not very well-known universities playing around with this stuff and you know there's just a couple people doing it for decades oh, that's and rad and then finally, um, you know, 20, I don't know, 20, 2005, 2010, something like that, uh, the world caught notice because the efficiencies of some of these thin film technologies um, were getting to be as high as what you can do from, from silicon-based technologies. Help us understand, like, what are some general numbers? When people say, like, a highly efficient versus, like, a yeah. not very, where are we at right now? So, okay, so if you have a, a single junction, meaning like a single, you know, something that has a single PN junction, you're, you know, the top possible efficiency you can get in sort of outdoor sunlight is, is calculated to be right around 30, you know, it's like 33% or something like that, give or take a little bit. Are we close to that? We are, I think the, the best anyone has ever done is just shy of 29%, I think. Yeah. If I remember correctly. And that's for gallium arsenide-based cells. Um, and the, tr the tricky thing, and it's, wor it's worth talking about, the sort of law of diminishing returns kicks in really hard. In terms of cost or what? Well, in first, in terms of just, let's just talk about, like, the material properties and perfection. So, like, if you want to, basically, basically, you have to do it's a it's a logarithmic function so uh -huh. if you if you do 10 times better you only get like you know a one percent return oh, on it or yeah. something like that so every time somebody's talking about like we went from i this is i used to i used to poo poo these people working in photovoltaics i was like what are they talking about like they increased the efficiency by 0.1 percent now you understand what that meant who in terms of materials it, properties anything and right exactly yeah, like it's, they really beefed it up it's like you get this tiny little increment in efficiency but it means you had to make it 10 times or 100 times better okay that's cool and that is that is something that's hard to comprehend and it, it makes it a hard it makes it a hard problem. <laughs> something I've uh, you know on our morning ski trips and elsewhere I've chatted with you about this. Something that you've helped me understand is that the cost of these things, which I always thought was like you know people would propose these, what I consider totally bonkers materials, right? Because it's got <laughs> tellurium in it or whatever else, which I know are just insanely expensive. And so I figured you know that's going to drive costs through the roof. And you've pointed out that usually the absorber layer, which I'm talking about, that tellurium for example 
is not dominating cost in no, these cells. No, not at all. This is what it surprised me actually when I started learning about this too. Um, because how come? It, how is that possible? Well, it's just it's just volume. Like, how much volume do you really need in order to do the job? So, like, what's the sort of active, the semiconductor active part of the solar panel? Um, and if you if you work out in rough numbers, it's like, you know, if you have a meter squared solar panel with a one micron film on it, you know, you multiply those numbers together, you get one cubic centimeter. It's like mill- grams, right? Or yeah, yeah. less. So, maybe. So then, like, what are you putting it on? Well, you're putting it on this big piece of glass. It's got, you know, in, in lots of cases, like an aluminum frame around it. So all of a sudden, you're paying for all this other material that's just there for mechanical support. Plus the current collector. Yeah, then you got yeah, you've got the you know wires and junction box and like it that all out, starts I mean, to dominate the turns cost. Out you need some pretty specialized plastic layers too that are impervious to water and in some cases yeah. even oxygen. So like you have you have some pretty high tech materials, but well I guess, I guess it runs the range. It's like low tech all the way to uh-huh. high tech. But that's encouraging because I think a lot of material scientists, we want to develop really exciting new materials. And it's it's worrying to think like, oh, we're going to be hamstrung because it'll be the cost to be the problem here. And that's maybe not the case with PV in the absorber layer. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a different problem um, than, say, like microchips. So like there's a huge amount of value in a tiny area in a microchip. So so eventually, yeah, like the cost of the materials adds up. But yeah. In in the case of solar panels, you're you're trying to match, you're trying to match the size and shape of these things to the application, and in the, the application, it turns out like the energy density coming from the sun is pretty dilute. Like, it just kind of shines everywhere. Yeah. It's not like a laser beam shining at us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we need like football fields of of solar panels we need huge areas well and we need to spread out that active material over a big area in order to capture it yeah so this problem of the area that solar in general it's just a it's not an energy dense form of energy right it's it's not very dense it depends uh, on what you're comparing it to well yeah and that, that's exactly <laughs> what i was going to get to right so one of my favorite writers in this area is a guy named mike schellenberger he's running for governor of california which i'm thrilled about um but he makes a really strong case for nuclear. And if you've listened to our previous episodes, you know I'm a big fan of that. And he does the comparison. And in mm. terms of like the acreage, right, required mm. and the power output, it's 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 ginormous difference. Um, yeah, but also fair, in terms of enough. the waste too, right? Mm. All of the waste that you would need in your entire life, right, from nuclear, the actual waste is tiny. I can't remember. It was like a soda can, right? It was like your life's worth of waste that you need in terms of energy consumption. Mm. And there's a growing concern about the waste involved in photovoltaics, right? It's actually dwarfing. I would have assumed like laptops and cell phones and things like that were uh, the biggest components, but they're being dwarfed yeah, by panels, is, man. That's an interesting, I think that's an interesting and evolving, you know, an evolving problem, right? It's, um, it hasn't, it hasn't been an issue I guess for there's, there's <laughs> when, a couple aspects. The, to the it. usage like, was so low; it was right, kind of ignorable, usage, right? When the usage is low, it's you know it's not something you notice. But then once some solar panels have been in service for a certain amount of time, you know whatever it is, like they're they're supposed to last, you know, these days. twenty to thirty years, hopefully. Well, the I mean, serious manufacturers have been pushed to give at least thirty year warranties these days. Mine's got twenty five on my roof. Yeah, so so let's say it. Let's say it doesn't even quite make that. But anyway, you know, you, this is a problem that lags the installation. 
yeah. you don't see the problem until yeah. later. Yeah, and, and, um, and I'm I not. Think, I, think, I don't uh, think it's disqualifying either. I think it's incentivizing for folks like us to figure out, okay, how can we use our brains to yeah, recycle these materials? Because exactly. right now, it's not cost effective. It's a it's a mess. But that doesn't yeah. mean that it can't be. It just means yeah. we need to put our thinking hats on and sort of figure it out. And I, I don't know. I'm I'm always the eternal optimist, and I, I'll just <laughs> just put this idea in there that costs shouldn't be the only consideration. Sometimes oh, we just sometimes 100%. we just got to do things because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I, I don't want this to go super long, but I don't want to end this podcast without talking about the future direction. So where's this field going? I, I clearly we got to talk about perovskite, right? Perovskite yeah. solar cells are blowing up. So tell us what those are and what's going on there. Yeah. So, okay. There, yeah, there's been silicon. We talked about, you know, my work as a researcher has been in thin film, particularly recently in, um, cadmium telluride based solar cells, um, which just to just to put a note out there, I mean the the efficiency is uh, the record efficiencies there are something like you know twenty three percent, and the material quality is um, like we measure what's called minority carrier lifetime, and like those are approaching like the theoretical maximum. There's a few incredible. There's yeah. A few, there's a few problems left to solve. Um, you know, I hope to be part of uh, solving that, but. There's just wonderfully yeah. perfected. That field is dialed, man. Materials. Yeah. Um, perovskites. Uh, sorry. Let me let me say one more thing. Like so, these thin film ones. You you usually are using some kind of a vacuum chamber to deposit these materials. So you take a piece of glass and you coat it in some kind of fancy machine. That's one of the biggest problems with them, right? That's what's driving cost and complexity. Yeah, and it unlocks the properties yes, we like, but yes and no. I mean, it's if you really dig in again, it's like the commodity prices, like glass and stuff, and like even more than like high vacuum processing, pops, huh? Yeah, like because well, be, the thing is that you can amortize out when you when you make huge yeah. production, okay. you can buy a really yeah. expensive machine and it pays for itself. Okay, right. The raw material costs keep scaling with the number of panels uh-huh. you make. Right. So so the economics are a little different. Um, and, and, and it is something that like academics aren't always great at, yeah. <laughs> at oh, assessing we'll correctly. Someone will figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, silicon, you got to grow single crystals in these, the halide perovskites. What was really crazy about these is, you know, some grad student chemist can like take a couple beakers of stuff. Yeah. yeah mix dude. it together. Solution processing. And you make this material that, that actually works really well. If you're familiar with material science at all, maybe you've heard us talk about perovskites. You know that it's a cubic crystal structure. It's got the three different ions involved. The big ones sit on the corners of the cubic cell. The smallest one sits in the dead center. And then you've got, in, in the typical perovskite, it's oxygen on the cube faces. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about these halide perovskites is that they're often hybrids between inorganic and organic materials. Right, right. And that it's, is giving really cool properties. It's wild to have... Um, yeah, a molecule acting as one of these ions. Yeah, like the, remember, like the big site that I just mentioned. It's so big that you people realize, like, well, what if we put actually a, a small molecule there? Right, right. And then it, it packs in a sort of perovskite. It's not always perovskite, but often it's in that arrangement. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of reasons that these things are of interest. First off, like they are incredibly defect tolerant. Like they really can tolerate pretty you know, a, a lot of defects and maintain high mobilities. So so performance. Yeah, yeah, that's an important. That is really an important um, and and really one of those like one of those things that I put under the category of like the personality of the material. Yeah, it's like it's like 
you know, these, these, you know, it's an ionic material, but it has this, this extra thing where it just, it just so happens that, you know, the chemistry and the physics line up that you can form, uh, you can, you can form defects and A, they don't do that much and B, they might heal themselves later. Yeah. And you can't talk about this field without people wanting to show you the sort of progress over time. If you look at the efficiency, and again, this is for tiny little lab scale cells, not for big panels that you can buy because these are not commercialized. But in the lab, tiny little you know junctions they put together, the rate of increase of efficiency over time is outpacing all of the other technologies. It's yeah, and it's and it's uh, looking pretty promising. So are, you don't seem so convinced. What do you well, think about it? I've looked into this issue, and I, let's let's just say that everybody who wants to make to make a point can cherry pick certain <laughs> statistics. But Fair enough. So the way I look at this, this is actually a, an interesting chart. A friend of mine, uh, uh, Philip Dale, and I worked on. We we actually collapsed every. Every well-known, uh, every well-known solar technology onto one universal graph. So the x-axis, in order to do that, it, that we used was the, like the number of published papers. Oh, okay. And we used the number of published papers as as a proxy for the amount of effort that went into it. Okay, sure. So the the thing about the reason that that perovskites have taken off so fast is that a whole field of all these all these, I mean, basically mostly chemists who had been working on organic and polymer solar cells for a couple decades all pivoted at the same time. There's been a huge effort. Millions of people and, and, I mean, super smart, talented people turned their effort towards this. Yeah. And, yeah, no wonder it's increased Uh faster. Like, do you know how many people have worked on... (laughs) <laughs> on CADTEL for the last two decades. <laughs> I can't it's imagine like, it's a major conference. <laughs> you can you can hold you can hold them in one room. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like the yeah, it's it's going fast, but it's because everybody was doing it at the same time. And, and I think it was just really <laughs> exciting because it's not every day that a new class of materials, like we'll have a future episode on, say, high entropy alloys. We haven't done it yet. But like mm-hmm. these things really captivate attention. And then there's kind of a bandwagon effect. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's all bad. I mean, there's super... I'm just saying there's something there, right? Their efficiencies are pretty slick. There's something there, right? It's not, it's, I'm not saying that people are just jumping on the bandwagon for no reason. I'm saying that the, the prospect of being able to make super high efficiency devices, um, at, with, with relatively, um, simple techniques, you know, the barrier, the barrier to entry is much lower. Yeah. But that's great. Like that's yeah. what you want. You know, you don't want you don't want your uh, your bridge to fall down because it's too hard to make. Oh, totally. You want you want the steel to be, you know, easy to make and resilient. Yeah, yeah. Like these are properties we want for a material. The Department of Energy has a really slick website where they talk about sort of the current state of uh, uh, hybrid perovskites, and they point out a couple things. Like there's really four major things that need to be fixed before this is sort of commercialized. They talk about stability, efficiency at scale, manufacturability, and then the sort of validation and like is it cost effective. Mm. So just quickly, I'd point out that stability is a pretty big one. You mentioned that panels like that you put on your roof. Uh, there's a big push to get those to be 25, 30 year, you know, warranties. Yeah. These things don't last for well. The the initially they were lasting like minutes. Yeah, Nowadays they can get it some depends. of them to like the month it's, scale, but they're not stable. They're breaking the, down over time. There, there's there's intricacies to that argument too. Um, I mean, for example, like if you, you know, if you just put, if you just put silicon, like the cells themselves. Not not the panel, but you take the cells themselves. They're also bad. Well, you've got 
I mean, you've got like corrosion couples, yeah, right? Yeah, you've got sure. like a metal touching some other yeah, there's reactions, some happening. other material, and then you've got a bias across it. If you put it out in the wind and the rain and the water, like what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> yeah, it oxidize, you know, and 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 that will eventually happen. So we have to protect these things. So so the encapsulation using these these uh, you know layered barrier materials is super important. Um, and, and that's, I think, where we are. We're trying to figure out, like, what are the real requirements and, and how can you really encapsulate these things? Now, there, there is also, you know, an unfortunate byproduct of the ease of forming these things. Like, if you, if you, if you go back to our original statement, you can mix up some stuff in a beaker uh-huh. and sort of make these, hybrid, these halide perovskites. Like, what that means is that, like, it's not really bound that tightly together. It kind of, yeah, if you yeah, can yeah. dissolve it, uh-huh. if you can dissolve the constituents That might be water, saying something fundamental about its stability. Yeah, it's <laughs> like it, it comes and goes kind of reversibly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from temperature. And in fact, some of the, I mean, so there's some really interesting science in there about, um, you know, we talked about the photoelectric effect, but there's... Uh, there's like let's let's just use the term photoionic effect like sure yeah you can actually make atoms jump out of the right places by shining light on them and this is one of the phenomena that's pretty prevalent in these yeah. weakly bound ionic crystals so so basically shining light on this material that's supposed to be al- absorbing light makes it fall apart <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know as i was reading like when i was reading why they're falling apart this is from the doe website it says you know they can decompose when they react with moisture and oxygen or when they spend extended time exposed to light heat or applied voltage and i'm like light heat or applied voltage <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Like, it's a solar panel uh, yeah so that, um, i mean it's a hard this is there's some real technological problems people are trying different formulations and and, and different sort of engineering solutions for encapsulating it but there's definitely something there. It's definitely yeah. promising. Yeah. I think one of the killer apps would probably be like making tandem cells of this stuff. Which um, is when you combine different yeah. absorbers that absorb at different wavelengths. So if you, if you make tandem cells, you know, your your efficiency limit, your your like yeah. theoretical that efficiency 33% goes up, right? Yeah, exactly. So you use the same amount of area, but you can, mm-hmm. you know, get more power out of it. That's the, that's the general idea. So is that the future? What's the future hold? Like in sort of final comments on this, like what, where's this field going? Uh, everywhere. It's going on, <laughs> it's going on your house, it's going on yeah. my house, it's going out in the desert. I mean, there really, you know, there really are only a few, um, you know, there's only really a few technologies that, can really put us on an, a sustainable path. Um, I believe this is one of them. Um, yeah, there there might be some waste problems, but it's like waste that you might cut yourself on instead of waste that might like irradiate you and cause cancer. You know, it's a little easier. I have lots of opinions about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like nuclear, but just, you know, I think it's it's on another day you should get some experts on yeah. to talk about yeah. it. I mean it's not these are not easy problems, they're let's not. face it. Like we, Yeah, they're not. We either gotta burn something or we gotta make solar panels or we gotta grow you know, grow grass and then burn the grass. And, and what's great is that you know, <laughs> it's been an all of the above approach, right? Yeah. Try everything. Let's see what sort of shakes out. Natural leaders sort of emerge and we can go chase them. Yeah. And there's not I mean, just look at cars like there's a place for trucks. There's a place for sports cars. There's a place EVs. for 18 wheelers. Like that, you know, it doesn't, 
we don't have to think about one technology yeah, no, not at all. like winning. Yeah. I think I think a healthy uh, healthy energy generation landscape would have all of the above, like you're saying. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got for today's episode. This was a hoot. Mike, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, do a quick shout out to our sponsors. As you all know, if you've listened to the show for a while, we are super grateful for the sponsors that make it possible. Uh, uh, our current sponsors are Elsevier, the Materials Today Journal. If you haven't checked it out, it's one of their premier flagship journals for Elsevier in the material space. I think it's great. They publish great stuff. When I was getting ready for today's episode, I saw numerous articles, unsurprisingly. Uh, <laughs> we'll put a link to a couple of those in our show notes, and they make those available to listeners of the podcast, right? If you just follow the link. Uh, from that we'll have in the show notes. You can actually access those for the first six months after this episode's out, which is, thank you also for doing that. It's pretty rad of you. Um, and then obviously special thanks to people that make the music possible. That's Alphabot and Colobite. Uh, we love the music you've got uh, going for us. And stay tuned. We've got some cool new music for the intro outro that Andrew has been putting together uh, with, a, with some help of, of some friends. So that's coming soon. Uh, obviously, if you want to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you. Actually, this episode people suggested it. People said, hey, they want to hear about solar panels. And we said, let's do an episode on it. So if you've got an idea for an episode, we want to hear about it. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're pretty active on YouTube and Instagram. That's uh, at materialism.podcast on Instagram. Anyways, find us, interact with us. We're very happy to hear from you. And otherwise, we'll see you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.